Support for this podcast comes from CLR Clear. Fight back against annoying household messes with CLR Clear. CLR Clear is tough on dirt and grime all around your home, and we're not just talking about calcium, lime, and rust. They have an entire lineup of cleaning products for your kitchen, bathroom, garage, and more. Visit clrbrands.com to learn more. CLR Clear, fight the clean fight. Eileen Fisher designs simple clothes to make your life easier. Timeless pieces in high-quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and more positive impact in the world. Visit EileenFisher.com and use offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com, offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off. Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Every other week, we'll be bringing you a special phone-a-friend episode between either Anne or me and one of our rad pals. Uh, Amina, this week, I talked to a rad uh, San Francisco lady, illustrator, woman about town. I always say that. These are always women about town. All of our Um, ladies are women about town. (laughs) Wendy McNaughton. Yes, um, she's the best. Who does some of the coolest collaborations of, of many people that I know. I feel like a lot of her work is done with journalists and writers and recently she and her partner Caroline collaborated on a book called Gutsy Girl which um, is sort of a like I don't know guide guide to being rad for baby girls out there. She's illustrated a scratch and sniff book about whiskey. She's worked on a couple of projects about tattoos. She did a very I don't know I guess you would call it visual journalism a book of drawings and reports and kind of like eavesdropped overheard snippets from San Francisco that is super super good too. So she's she's all over the place. She's so cool. I was recently at a hotel in Tahoe and loved the illustrations and lo and behold it turned out to be her. Recently, again, I was at a gala and all of the wine labels were done by her. So, you know, like her vibe is very strong and like beautiful. I'm excited to hear this. Yeah, she's also someone who um, came to this profession as essentially a professional visual artist pretty late in life. Like She kind of had a whole other career. And so I always love talking to women who are finding really great creative fulfillment and success in kind of a second act or like later act. So anyway, here's Wendy. Wendy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here, Anne. Be here metaphorically. Be here like in the internet, drinking tea on opposite ends of California. (laughs) I am excited to be meeting somewhere in the middle of a tube with you and everybody else. Yes. Yes. That that will explain any technical echoes or difficulties we have. We're in the middle of a tube. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So for people, for people who are not familiar with your work. First of all, I think that like a lot of people who listen to this podcast are probably have probably seen your illustrations or some of your books, in part because I think they circulate pretty widely on the internet, but they might not draw the connections like, oh, Wendy is the woman who did the pen and ink tattoo book, or Wendy, Wendy is the illustrator who worked on Meanwhile in San Francisco and does the visual journalism. Wendy is the illustrator who does the New York Times spot like illustrations. I think that people who sometimes are not... <laughs> are not illustrators or designers, 
like in the same way that writers pay attention to bylines that no one else does. Like sometimes it can be like, oh yeah, like look at all these different things I've seen. I am familiar with, <laughs> with what someone has done. And so I know, I know your website is kind of divided into these broad categories of the book work that you do and the magazine illustration that you do and, um, and all of this different types of stuff. How do you, do you just give people a laundry list when they say, what do you do? Or like, how do you summarize it? I kind of just say I draw. <laughs> That's like a good catch-all phrase, I guess. I draw. And then we could like break it out from there. But what you said before is totally true. Like I get that a lot. They're like, oh, yes, people say, oh, yeah, you're an illustrator. What kind of stuff do you do? And then we'll talk about it, whatever. And then we'll be like, oh, yeah, that thing, you know. Um, and I think that is my – a lot of people work in one particular area, but my work is pretty – broad um, as far as how it manifests like it can be online it can be in a magazine it can be in a book but what it always kind of reflects is my interests I describe myself as an illustrator and a graphic journalist or I do illustrative documentaries which means I tell stories with pictures and words and a lot of times I draw from life yeah and so maybe does that make sense? no it does make it does make <laughs> sense okay it might, I don't know. I'm still trying. You know what? The, the words are really strange because it isn't like this. This field of illustrated journalism actually has this like really rich, long history. But because, you know, of cameras and how the journalism field has changed and everything, it kind of means something different now than it did back in the day. And there's not that many people really doing it now. So I still like I'm, I'm feel, still trying to figure out a word. So if you can or anybody can help me figure out a, a, a great phrase for it. I'm and, wide open. And maybe you could describe like like what types of projects would fall under this um, illustrated or drawn journalism like rubric that you've Okay, done. so a couple that were in a book called Meanwhile in San Francisco that I did. There's one about the San Francisco Public Library, and I went and spent like a month in the library and took a bunch of notes and interviewed a bunch of people and just hung out basically and tried to like really get to know the place from the inside out. I mean, I'm a big fan of libraries anyway, but I found this was like the most amazing place in the world. They had like a full-time social worker on staff and they were doing all this great stuff. And all the while, while I'm figuring out what the story is behind this library, I'm drawing from life, drawing the things that I see and the people that I talk to. And then after I gathered all this information, I put all the pictures together with the words and did like the biggest edit job you've ever seen. It's This is what makes it more documentary and less journalism. Like it's definitely a cut and paste job um, to tell the story. And you can like then see it online or you can see it in a book. In some ways it's like a documentary. In some ways it's like journalism. In some ways it's like a comic. In some ways it's like an illustration. I don't know. Maybe if you make a Venn of those things, it's like somewhere in the middle there. But the 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 word for it, I'm not so sure. Right. Well, and it's funny that you should mention Venns because you also do visual, well, you call it visual philosophy, which I love, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but sort of like diagrammed ways of understanding concepts and complicated, um, like taxonomies. <laughs> what, what, I don't know. What are your other, which what are your other terms? I feel like, I feel like we had, we share this in common because you're like the queen of the pie chart, which I feel is like the kind of ultimate essential diagram and way of understanding things. And you're so good at it. Anne. But, oh my God. Nobody pie charts of, better than Well, but actually like, so maybe we can talk through, I feel like my pie charts are frequently like could just be a list or could be like represented visually another way. And I default to pie charts because it's like the only thing I know how to draw. Like I trace a coaster. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Undersell yourself a little. <laughs> but you know, but but no, for serious though, it's like I and I and I wonder. I mean, any one of the pie charts that I do is something that I could write a short essay about. I could convey that information in another way. And the overlap with what you do is like that it is, I have chosen to make it a kind of chart-like thing, but also that it's like in my own handwriting, which, you know, I think that that is like a through line to a lot of your work. It's like the font that is Wendy. <laughs> right? It, no, it's true. I mean, I wonder if you took your pie chart and then made it in a whatever it is, Bononi or something like that, if, would, if it would not be yours anymore. I mean, it still would be your brain, but it, I wouldn't read it as an Anne Friedman, you know? Um, but I think maybe, I wonder if we both do this visualization for, for similar reasons. I, am in, I mean, I guess that's kind of the way my brain works is I visualize things more, complicated things just get super simple. I can't really understand them, so they get super simplified. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you could write like a beautiful long essay about this stuff, but it's, it's almost like just condensing it down into this small little bite. And I feel like sometimes when I, when I look at diagrams like yours or I'm trying to figure out mine or whatever, sometimes I feel like I leave these things and it, it keeps my brain kind of ticking in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. There's like spaces to fill in or something with thought. So yeah. yeah. Or it's like, it's like deciding that rather than, try to tell a complete story about something you're gonna you're gonna pick out one detail or three details and how they interact right right exactly and then leave a lot to the viewer or reader to kind of put the put the rest of the piece together and 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 also make somebody usually smile it's they're they're fun they're like fun to make and even if it's about like a challenging topic or something I think that putting it in that way is a little gives a little bit of lightness to the topic you know and brings a sense of humor to things which I think is always a good thing to do these days for sure. Yeah. And so, okay. So there's all this different stuff that you do. I mean, I, I feel like I encounter most of your work in books and in like, um, in the New York times and magazine illustrations. And then, like I said, like I occasionally bump into you on Tumblr or somewhere I don't expect to find you necessarily. Um, of all of the stuff that you do, is there something that is like, okay, this is my like payment workhorse. This is where all the money comes from. And then this one is like my time, my time work. This is where my time goes, but it's not the, the highest paid or like, how does that, how does that break down in terms of you making a living? Cause I know you're, you do this, you draw full time, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's such, that's such a great question. I feel like for drawers and all freelancers kind of, we're all trying to figure out like what that I don't want to use the word balanced because it's not balanced at all, but like what the right combination is, you know, I found that that distinction doesn't work very well for me because the jobs that I've taken on where I'm like, okay, this job pays well, it's usually a commercial job, meaning that it's somebody who's like a company or has a product or something. And they're like, we want your look on this product and we're going to tell you what to draw and we're going to tell you what to say. Right. And maybe like, you know, in, in your handwriting or whatever. But it's it's very much like a, a hands and head for hire situation. I find that no matter what the number is that's attached to it, uh, at some point I get really, really angry. <laughs> I get super pumped <laughs> about the project and get really resentful. And I'm. it's hard for me to turn that feeling off and then switch over to the work that I'm really excited about and I love to do. And all my work ends up going to shit, like, because it's kind of been contaminated by this, like, angry feeling of resentment or something. That's not to say that I don't take those jobs. We need to eat. We need to pay the bills. And, you know, um, that's, that's great. So sometimes I'll take them. But I'm really striving to, like, do 
the work that I love to do and, and as much as I can, because also, you know, work begets work, right? Like the more kind of work that we do that we love, that's what people see. And then that's what people ask us to do. And if I do more of that other stuff that I don't like to do, then people are like, oh, they see that. Then like, yeah, let's do more of that. And that is not the right direction. Right. Which is such a hard thing when you are starting out as a freelancer, because it's sort of like, get what you can to pay your bills, but then, oh God, have I set myself on this track where I'm starting to get assignments or work that is not the thing that I love. (laughs) Totally. Did you have that experience too? I did, yeah. And I remember reading something that, there's a writer I very, very much admire and I remember reading something that she wrote, I can't remember if it was on her blog or on Facebook or something, where, you know, I only say yes to things that I feel so passionate about and like 100% interested in and I had this, like, I had a super bitter, must be nice kind of reaction. <laughs> Even though she's, she's totally right that that is, like, a, a great way to live and make sure you keep getting the work you want to do. But I, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm still trying to figure out in some ways how to, like, strip out the things that are, like, lingering from a time when I was financially bound to say yes to things I didn't want to do. And I'm, is it, is, has it been like that for you? Totally. And the, well, I feel like there was a, um, it wasn't like a switch happened, but there was a, a period of time of change to when I was saying um, yes to everything. And, but for two reasons, in part, because it was like good experience, good exposure, good money, whatever it was, right. All that stuff um, just coming together. I was, and I, but mostly because I'm really excited about everything. Like there really isn't anything that you could tell me to, to do a story or do a drawing about that I couldn't find interesting in some way. I also um, have this problem. <laughs> this is actually, it's like the best problem and worst problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so there was this time when I was like, yes to everything and all this great stuff was coming. But then I was getting burnt out really, really bad because I was doing a lot of smaller projects for little bits of money and was just spreading myself really thin, I feel like. There was this period then when I had to switch to making like the selective yeses and starting to say no. And that was really hard, hard to do. It still is hard to do. And because some things are tempting because of the subject, because of the collaborator, because of the money, because of the the creative freedom, whatever it is. It's such a cliche, but I guess as the cliche goes, that they're that they're, they are cliches for a reason. Um, saying no to something, I've really learned is like, really opens up the door to say yes to the next thing that's going to be the right thing that comes along, you know? Right. And it's taken a lot of like mistakes. Like I tend to learn the same lesson again and again and again. (laughs) Is there a memorable, I mean, I guess you don't have to name names, but is there a memorable no or series of no's um, where you were like, okay, that's like really the last time, like trying to quit smoking or something like, but like, but like in a work context where you were like, that's the last time that I say yes to that, that type of work. Or like, what have you done to try to hold yourself accountable for that? I have a wonderful partner who's responsible for my historic memory. (laughs) I really can't recommend getting one enough. Um, uh, My partner, Caroline is uh, I kind of run everything by her because I've also learned being in a partnership. Like she goes through everything that I go through. If I'm really stressed out or really excited about something, she gets the runoff from that. Right. So if there's big decisions around projects to be made, I'll kind of run it by her and she'll be like, no, I just want to point out that this is the third time 
that you have, you know, said maybe and then done it and then gotten really stressed out. So we're going to say no this time, right? Um, So luckily she's like taking that proverbial cigarette out of my mouth. Well, also a partner has to deal with the fallout so much. Like if you are truly grumpy for three weeks while you work on something, it's like, I'm sure she bears the brunt of it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. I think our partners bear the brunt of all, all of that. They get the highs and the lows. They get, they get all of it. So I'm trying to think of an, of a good example. You know, I mean, I'm even willing to say on the record that there are people um, who I've had really terrible experiences working with. Sometimes I think it's not their fault. It's the publication's fault. And sometimes I think it's a personality issue, but that I have, I have like a, an actual blacklist. Oh, good for you. Okay. Yeah. Back on the record again. Like yeah. I, I, I think that's a great, that's a great policy actually. And a really smart idea. Maybe I should make a little list too. In our work, in yours and mine, and a lot of people's, we collaborate with so many people at so many different levels, right? And I mean, we have our job when we're like sitting in a little room alone, but we're always in contact with other people. And who we work with has so much to do with the whole entire process and the feeling of it and the outcome and the quality and all that, for sure. And there's some people that I love to work with so much. Oh my gosh. You know, writers and editors and cooks and really great, smart people. How can you tell someone might make a good collaborator for you? Uh, you know, I, I work with a lot of my friends. I think that's, that's one thing. Like, we get along really well. Um, I already know that we have a good chemistry in terms of, like, just bouncing ideas back and forth and have, like, maybe a similar vision in, in that we, what we want to contribute and what we want to make in the world. And they're fun. Like, that's, that's pretty important. I want my work to be fun. I seem to have made some pretty awesome, talented friends in the past five or so years, yourself included. Yeah, same. And I mean, has it, has it ever, I mean, not to immediately make it a bummer question, but has it ever, has it ever been more difficult for a reason or, or other, one reason or another um, to work with someone because you're friends? Oh my God. Yeah. Well, a collaboration is a relationship, right? I mean, it really is, especially if you're working on a book. And um, I'm sure that some people who I've worked on books with could very well hear this. I love you. I love you so much. <laughs> and just as, just as we love all the people who we have been through major relationships with. And there's some moments when it's like total ecstasy and falling in love. And then there's like, okay, now we're actually in the relationship and we have to do the work, you know? And then there's like tension and there's a fight. I mean, there's almost always been one really tense part in every collaboration that I've had. And that includes working with my partner. I mean, we've done two books together now, so that's interesting. But every, every single one, we've made it out the other side, both super proud. I think of the work and also the process. Right. I hope if they're listening, I hope they think the same thing. I mean, I, th- I would find it disingenuous. Like, I would have been shocked and disappointed if you had said, oh, it was a completely smooth road with each one of these projects, and I've never had a conflict with a friend I collaborated with. I would have been just like, I would have hung up on you. Oh, I know. That's ridiculous. Who doesn't have, that's totally impossible because you take a friend and you take work. I mean, there's, there's no way that it, that it can't be. I would feel like people who'd be doing that would be holding everything in, and then they, like, never speak to each other again after the project's over or something. Right. Yeah. Every generation has its challenges. Some would say that's the reason for its progress. It might start with a small act of kindness or a big idea that changes everything. It can come from the tiniest voice or the voice of a generation. Or it could come from me, Aminatu. 
I am one of six change-making women featured in Eileen Fisher's Good Goes On campaign this spring. The campaign highlights women empowering women, the importance of sustainability, and the power of good design. Eileen started in 1984 with the idea that simple clothes can make life easier. And after spending a day on set wearing a super comfortable ultra-chic jumpsuit, I think she's really on to something. As a company, Eileen Fisher believes doing well by doing good, and that's reflected in the way their clothes are made. Timeless styles and quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and a more positive impact on the world. It was a real honor to be featured in this campaign and meet the other women making a difference in their community. I've been a longtime Eileen Fisher fan, so this was a dream come true for me. You can visit EileenFisher.com and use the offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off of your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com, offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off. Um, I actually, I, I feel like we kind of got ahead of ourselves. I, I want to go back to um, the, the whole conversation about like taking work that you have to take versus trying to direct your career a little bit more. Maybe you could tell me about like your earliest days as a freelancer and like, and what that was like, and then kind of how you've transitioned to where you are now. It was really intense. I was working at an advertising agency. We only worked with like nonprofits and I, I was the director of strategy was my title there. And it was a pretty darn full-time job that I felt like really strongly about, but I also wanted to draw and I wanted to make that transition. So I started getting these little freelance jobs and then started working nights. So I would like go to work, you know, for a pretty full eight hour day. And then I would come back home and I would draw until like one or two in the morning and wake up and do it again the next day. And I did that for like six months and it was super intense, but it, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. It, it was such a fire. It just felt like this is the right time. This is the right thing. This is what I have to do. It was almost like there was this door and it's like, you can walk through this door right now or the door is going to close. That's really what it felt like. So I worked my butt off, and after about six months, I had built up enough work. It was a lot of it was online. A lot of it was not paid, um, and that I know is very controversial. But I was learning how to be a freelance illustrator, so I kind of considered this like my school in a way for freelancing. Um, and I was meeting a lot of people through doing that. Like a perfect example. Do you remember this thing? Uh, you were there for Forty Eight Hour Magazine. Yeah, I worked on it after it was it switched the name to Longshot, but I'm very familiar. I know I know the people in the project and everything. Okay, that was like that's I think a really great example and was pretty important I think in uh, going from having art be this thing that I do on the side to being my full time work and realizing that there was this there's this community of people making stuff and asking questions and doing stories which I didn't even really know about before. Forty Eight Hour Magazine, Longshot Magazine was started by. Sarah Rich and Matt Honan and Alexis Madrigal. And I didn't know any of those folks. I just had an account on Twitter I didn't look at very often. And I saw somebody said that they were doing this magazine in 48 hours. And if anybody wanted to contribute, you know, to give a shout. And so I wrote and said, do you need an illustrator? Anyway, long story short, I ended up like kind of 
going there and with my paints and everybody's with their laptops around and I'm like show up with my little my little travel pack of watercolors and, and pens and sat down and just started drawing and it was cool because I had never seen people work like build a magazine before I had never been in a room where people are working like that and I don't think anybody there had ever seen anybody sit down and do watercolor paintings before so we kind of found that we could we just really enjoyed working together and being with each other and they had something that I could learn a lot from and I could contribute so anyway we all became fast friends and I think that's how you and I met and I think that's how I think it's just a really great community formed around that around a group of people wanting to make something cool and interesting and smart and fun in a short amount of time that led to other freelance jobs and yeah after six months of that kind of crazy stuff I quit my job uh, and then promptly had a total meltdown the next day. <laughs> <laughs> like, what have I done? Yeah, are you kidding? I'm like, wait a sec, but now what? You know what I mean? Like, there's no, oh shit, there's no more paycheck coming. There's like no more health insurance. There's no more, what is going to happen? It was like stepping off a cliff. And I remember I had like maybe two months, two months of work that continued on past like, after, like a freelance work after I quit. And then there was this break where... The jobs ran out and I didn't have anything coming. And, you know, it was like a, a chunk of time where I was like, did I make the worst mistake of my life? Like, am I going to have to either go back to the job or what am I going to do? And how did you get through that or like over that hump? I think it probably was around that time that I started doing the meanwhiles, which are those, those stories, the illustrated journalism stories that I, I told you about. I wanted to work with the rumpus, and I was going to do some kind of comic or something like that. But I have this background in social work, and so I wanted to tell these stories. And if I was going to tell other people's stories, I kind of use these social work tenants as like a guide. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll have to use people's own words. I'm not going to put my words on people's mouths. So I'll interview people and then I'll draw them. And I developed this kind of like outline of, or like a, like a methodology. And Mm -hmm. I identified a few groups that I was interested in learning about. And I went out and just started talking to them. So I guess I like made us, made up a project for myself. That's what I did to get out of that. I made up a project for myself and unexpectedly, ironically, that project ended up being the thing that I love to do most I'm curious if like when you were in college or when you were, you know, when you maybe thought of yourself more as like a social worker, not, you know, someone who draws for a living, if you, if this was in the back of your mind as something that you wanted to do, or if it was like, oh, drawing is my hobby, it could never be a career. I stopped drawing for eight years. I never thought I was going to draw. And I definitely never thought I was going to be an illustrator. So I went to an undergrad, I, I studied fine art, and I did social work for graduate school. So but as soon as I got out of art school, I did not want to draw. I definitely didn't want to be an illustrator because to, to fine artists at the time, like illustrators are these people who just decorate pages and there's no like idea. It's just that somebody tells them what to do and they make it look pretty. So I, that's what I thought being an illustrator was. I wanted nothing to do with that. And I also had to get a job getting out of art school. So making art is not, is not that. So um, I just stopped drawing completely. And it wasn't until wow, like eight, maybe even 10 years later that I picked up a pen again and started drawing. It was like, oh my God, this is what I do. This is who I am. And it it just came back really fast and really hard. And 
I have pretty much been drawing daily ever since. Pretty much. I, I think that a lot of the building blocks that I intentionally or unintentionally laid for myself as a freelancer also involved work that was unpaid or not paid at all, which is not yeah. to say I was like blogging for free for the Huffington Post, but it was like, it was really comparable stuff. It was stuff like 48 hour magazine or projects with friends. Um, and I, I always feel really conflicted when people tell, I mean, people tell illustrators and writers similar things about how to establish yourself and like create worth for the work that we do. And, and that, that rule is always like, don't work for free, don't work for free, don't work for free. And so I'm curious about how you respond to people who like want to take a really hard line on that. I totally get it. I completely understand. It's, it's, it's messed up. I totally understand both sides. Um, I think like on one hand, I was, I was in a privileged position where I had a job during the day. But on the other hand, I worked my freaking ass off until one or two in the, at night, you know, like doing this stuff for free to make the change. I, I don't see it being like a one way or the other. I, I do think across the board that we should all charge more. I will say <laughs> Absolutely. And I think also because coming into any profession, we're so excited about meeting a profession that like we love and we want to be doing, like whether it's drawing or writing or, you know, taking a picture or whatever. We're so psyched that somebody wants us to do it. And we're like shocked, you know, that somebody wants our whatever it is and they want to put it and show it to the rest of the world. And we're so excited about just that, that we're like, wow, I remember saying, I'll pay you, right? If you do this, I'll pay you to put it out. Right. And I, I remember feeling like, I'm just so happy you'll give me 50 bucks. Like that's a bonus. Cause I'm just getting, I just care about getting it out there. Our worth is a hard thing at first. And it still is. Oh my God, it still is. I'm terrible with that stuff. But especially when we're just starting, it's weird with freelancing and, and with most jobs, we don't really talk about how much we make. Even with our friends, we don't talk about it. My partner used to be a firefighter, and she talks about how their salaries were publicly posted, and everybody knew what everybody else was making. And it eliminated a lot of tension that can exist now. You know, she's a writer full-time now, and nobody really knows very much about each other, and there's this added tension around that. I do wonder if we shared that information more, if we would feel more comfortable knowing our worth and, and, um, asking for it. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, pal Max Linsky, who is one of the hosts of the long form podcast recently tweeted that, uh, money is the number one thing that listeners of the podcast want to hear about from his guests who are journalists. And it's the number one thing that guests tend to shy away from talking about. Um, which I think is natural, but you know, I, I, it's funny because I'm also a listener of Sex, Death, and Money podcast. Which you just named two podcasts that I love. I yes. love them. so good. Um, yeah. Intra podcast love, but but I have to say that I feel like it's mostly about death and sex. I actually don't think they talk about money very often. It's like the it's like the stepchild third. It's so funny that it's the, it's the real taboo in this crazy capitalist nation is like the money, right? And I think that it's fear-based, right? Well, what do you think people are afraid of? Well, I have had editors tell me when I, I mean, because I negotiate for myself on almost every job. I've had editors say things to me like, well, I can give it to you. I can give you this rate this time, but don't say anything about it because I can't pay everyone this. I'd go bankrupt or like, I mean, I've yeah. heard the same. I've, I've gotten the exact same thing. Yeah. I've, the, I've heard this, but so is that it might be true. It also might be 
dare I say, manipulative crack? Like, I don't know, you know? And that, but that, that really puts us in a difficult position. Right. Because I want to share what I know about negotiating and about how much budget I perceive there to be for work that's similar to mine. But I also don't want to wreck my relationship with an editor who's agreed to pay me what I feel I'm worth. Yeah, exactly. Was there some kind of math that you figured out at a certain time to know how much that should be to ask for? Yes and no. I mean, there are a couple of things for me. I mean, I, I think that friendships with other writers have been helpful. I ask friends. I mean, not like I make a habit of sending cold emails to people I know and say, hey, how much is so-and-so paying you? But, <laughs> but you know, when I have a one-on-one in-person conversation with another writer, especially if it's someone I know pretty well, I bring it up. I say, how much did you get for that thing that you wrote at this place? Or, you know, did they pay your travel expenses? Or <laughs> whatever I'm curious. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm constantly gathering information on whether... I just wish, yeah, I mean, I could be better about doing that. I wish that we all would do what you're doing more, which is just like, talk, you know, talk to each other because I, I've, yeah, I feel like it's something that people do, myself included, have a lot of questions a lot of times about, about how things work and, um, and how to make those decisions, you know? Yeah. So I also yeah. try to be pretty forthcoming. I mean, I think that it's also reasonable for places to offer different writers different rates or different illustrators different rates for various reasons. And so it's sort of like, I, I think I ask for things now. I ask for more now than I did when I first started. And I think that that's warranted. But I also don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that I think it's hard because this stuff, when it happens in this, in this sort of way I'm describing, which is like a private like meeting between two writers or two illustrators or whatever. It's basically the like Lily Ledbetter problem of like there not being transparency. It's basically like your partner's firefighting example, the opposite. (laughs) I know. And it's, and it's, it's really, it's, it's a, it's such a thing that we all, I do feel like feel uncomfortable about. And maybe there's a way to talk about it when we're comfortable to talk about specifics, but even if we're not talking about specifics, just to talk about it in more general terms, I think uh, it will be, will be freeing and helpful. I also keep thinking about the thing that you said about like a a job that you take for money, sometimes bleeding over and affecting the other work that you do, or like kind of blocking you up for other projects you're working on. What are the things you do when you are feeling stuck on one thing or feeling like you're in between projects or like when you need to like kick your own ass to be, to be more inspired or motivated? Oh, yeah, don't look at the internet. Because <laughs> that's the first thing I do. If I'm procrastinating or I'm feeling like stuck, I go I go and I look at like Twitter or Facebook or something. But I found that like that's that is a dark, dark hole. But yeah, I mean I'm in my studio right now, hence that hence the echo. I have like a bunch of books all over the place, which are kind of my panacea to like stress about ideas because I can just go and look at all this stuff and you know after about half an hour there's no way that something can't something can't pop up oh wow so do you feel like the opposite would work for me as a writer I need to do I need to illustrate something not read a book (laughs) or like do you think that there's something about this cross-disciplinary thing where like I think sometimes of your work as sitting very neatly between the worlds of like words and images what can I what can I do, Wendy? That's what I'm trying to ask you. <laughs> how do I how do I get unstuck? <laughs> I don't know. A lot of people like coloring books these days. <laughs> what do you how do you um, feel about coloring books? Oh my god, I hate them. 
I'm sorry, I really do. I cannot abide. I cannot, I can't do it. I understand, I get, I get it, but like, um, I just, I guess I'm more of the camp of like, I feel like everybody can draw themselves, just getting a pen out and not judging how good the drawing is and making some lines on a paper, as opposed to like filling in other people's lines, you know, um, it's just kind of a different thing. But hey, on the other hand, there's nothing I love more than like the painting, the step of my work that's painting when I basically have a podcast on or even honestly like a Netflix show and I'm pretty much coloring by just like painting in between but they're my lines so who am I to judge who am I if it works for you go for it hooray for the coloring I think that most most adults are very intimidated by like the idea of a blank page and just draw something like they like it's so intimidating Oh, it's like, that's like me in writing though. Oh my God. If it's, it's such a simple thing. Like I have to write one paragraph and I'll sit down and I'm, if, if I have to write an email or something like that, that is fine. If I have to handwrite something for my work, fine. But if I were to sit down and try and construct a cohesive, articulate paragraph, all of a sudden I'm just tearing my hair out. I can't. Oh, it's bad. But no, the books in my studio are actually filled with pictures. So it's not, it's, they're not, I'm, I'm not actually reading. Although I stopped like looking at Twitter and Facebook in the past few weeks and I've read more books in the past few weeks than I have in maybe the past few years. How does it make is, you feel? Oh my God. I feel, uh, I feel simultaneously old and awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I know this is such an internet centric show. I feel like so much is like about stuff that's online and um I just so I feel kind of bad saying this and I mean that's how I know you like so much great stuff comes from the internet I I would not be drawing like I I am now without it at the same time I feel like I had hit this max where every second was uh, checking this checking constant checking and like nothing was really coming of it like I was there's no ideas or anything it's kind of crazy how much more time there is in the day I gotta say how do you stop yourself? Are you, did you just like delete the apps off your phone or like, how do you prevent yourself from going there? The phone. I just took them off the phone and there was there. It was still, I kept on Instagram. I'm still on Instagram. Okay. So it's not completely, I'm not like totally chased. I was going to say it would be heresy for like someone who draws (laughs) to not be on Instagram. I got some serious scoldings from some very savvy friends or like that would be stupid. <laughs> you need to keep your job. So um, I, I have that on there, but the other ones I just took off. And for the first couple of days, I noticed I would go, it was like, it was like going for a gun. I'd like reach in the back pocket, you know, you kind of whip it out like to check. And um, I would go and like whip it out and, and it, it, there'd be nothing there. I couldn't look at anything. Back in the pocket it went. After a couple of days, it, it kind of faded. Tell me if you can, what are the, what are the big projects that you're working on right now? I am in the middle of finishing up two big projects. One, as you mentioned, the tattoo book earlier with Isaac Fitzgerald, we did that, that you were in. Yeah. Thank you. Yay. Um, That was pen and ink. And we're doing one now called knives and ink, which is about um, the culinary world and the chefs and all of their tattoos. And that's really fun. Wendy, why do chefs have so many tattoos? Oh my God. I now can give you about 60 reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Those chefs, you know, play pretty hard and work really hard. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any one reason, but they've got a ton of stories or it might be all the drinking and stuff behind the scenes. (laughs) Who knows? Uh, and then the other one um, that I'm working on right now is 
a book called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat with Samin Nozrat, who's an incredible chef. And that'll be coming out in like a little over a year. Oh, and then my book with Caroline called Gutsy Girl, Escapades for Your Life of Epic Adventure. I'm so excited. It's awesome. It's for girls 8 to 12 years old to inspire them to be more like gutsy and get outdoors and don't do things from like a fear, fear-based place. That's coming out in March. So what, what does your process look like with her? Do you guys like, do you write together and then you illustrate or how, how do you, how do you come up with it? It's a good question. When we did our first book together, uh, Lost Cat, we thought that we were going to work really, really closely. And then we decided we were definitely not going to do that (laughs) really quickly. (laughs) Like immediately it was just, there was some tension there for sure. And then we thought it would be more like a church and state situation where she would just hand me the manuscript and then I would illustrate it. But what we eventually kind of developed is this back and forth where we don't definitely don't work in the same room. We work separately, but we send each other pieces as we're working because her writing does kind of like bounce off of what I draw. And clearly what I'm drawing is bouncing off of what she's writing. Ideally, I think when it's an illustrated text, what it should do, what an illustrated text should do is that the visuals in the text should be complementary and they should create something together as opposed to the illustration just depicting what's going on in the words and we created a way of doing that which basically looks like sending a lot of emails and then us carving out time where it's like a work meeting and I'm usually like well let's have it at seven o'clock with a glass of wine and she's like no I'm coming to your studio and we are having a work meeting and that actually works really well for us. I have never really, I mean, obviously everything is a collaboration with an editor or with like with someone, but in that kind of direct back and forth, I have, I haven't done much of that. And do you feel like it it like changes like the, the actual work that you produce? Like do like, like the result on the page is different than if you had tried to like tackle the same thing solo? Oh, completely with, with everything. Yeah. I mean, I, the people who I work with all have fantastic ideas. They're all super smart and um, we'll, we'll bring a, we'll bring a lot to it. So um, whatever I'm doing is, is reflecting what they're thinking about and what we're thinking about. But a lot of times people will come back and be like, that's awesome. You know, it would be even greater is if this, you know, we like, we go back and forth and it can, it can change. So have you, you've never really collaborated. Have you ever done anything with an illustrator? I mean, yeah, when I mostly though, as an editor, like I would sort of be the editor collaborating with an illustrator and passing along what the writer was doing and then working with the illustrator that way, often with the intermediary of like an art director. So that's something that is confusing to me is there are some editors, I mean, I understand for for a magazine or especially for a newspaper, for sure, I understand most of all with the newspaper whose quick turnaround time that the art director, you know, or the editor is in between those two. But a lot of times, like especially with books and like um, maybe lengthier magazine articles or something, it's perplexing to me that people don't think to put or sometimes even don't want to put the writer and the illustrator in touch. I'm not quite sure why. I think only good things can come of it. I think editors are afraid of losing control. They're sort of like, I need to keep the writer in line of like what I want this to be and then make sure the illustrator is also in line with it. Like, I think they, they, I know because I used to be one think of themselves as like, yeah, like the, the parameter. 
And do you, would you think that it would kind of spin, it would spin out of control and that it would create, it would, something that you weren't expecting or don't really want would be created? Is that what you Yeah, feel, absolutely. I think, yeah, which is not, I mean, I am not bragging about it, but I definitely think that there's sort of this, we assigned this thing with this specific, you know, set of, for this specific set of reasons. And if we just let the illustrator and the writer go off together, what comes back might not fit whatever we need to do in terms of the issue overall. Cause they're not looking at the big picture. They're just looking at their that, own thing. You're so right. See, that totally makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. To but me. I don't <laughs> think it yields, I don't think it yields the best work necessarily. I mean, I, I actually am not, I mean, it, it makes sense, but I'm not sure it's, you know, well, maybe like for, um, I mean, you certainly couldn't do that. One couldn't do that for every story in an issue, but it, I think it could be cool. And actually this happened with um, California Sunday. They assigned a piece to a, a journalist and myself, and we did a collaborative project together. And it was a really interesting experience. Like, I think that that maybe a piece here or there could like assigning as a collaboration, you know, could, could yield something really interesting. And unexpected, which could be which could be good. Oh, that's the other thing I'm super psyched about this year. Um, I just agreed with the fine folks over at California Sunday to um, do their back page uh, for like a year, like a long time. Oh, awesome! Uh, yeah, I'm super excited. I'm really, really happy about it, and quite honestly, a little bit intimidated because um, that's I don't know. It's like a. It's just. It's a lot of responsibility. So, and it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of freedom and all of those things. Yikes. The dream. The dream. <laughs> I'm so excited. But do you ever get this? Like, if you get a dream assignment, do you totally freak out? Yes, obviously. It's like, it's like, yeah, what happened to the girl who got it? Or it's the Willy Wonka. What happened to the boy who got everything he always wanted? It's like panic. <laughs> Total panic. No idea what to do. None. Yeah. I have always wanted to ask you about, about your Meanwhile in San Francisco book is how notable the absence of like the tech community is for me. Like when I looked at it, which is not to say that like everyone who lives in San Francisco has this tech centric experience, but I definitely noticed and assumed it must've been a conscious choice to not make that, um, really very prominent at all slash like almost non-existent I feel like in your representation of the city yeah I think the only representation of the tech world in the book is in contrast to the people who are living on 6th street which is a really um, challenging place to live that's being quickly gentrified so um I did not want to include like the tech community as I mean, the book is a compilation of uh, stories about different communities in San Francisco. And I didn't want to include that community because honestly they get enough attention. The book is about communities that don't get the spotlight a lot that I feel are really the fabric of the city. And without these communities, everything from like dog walkers to giants fans to the guys who are like 80 years old and are swimming in the bay in their speedos, you know, like that's the kind of, character and culture that makes San Francisco and always had has made it this really special place that it is that's really at risk of disappearing right now. And so I wanted to celebrate those things as opposed to continuing to celebrate the thing that we see all the time that's representing San Francisco right now to the rest of the world. It's a lot more than that, you know? Yeah. Do you, do you consider your work political? Yes. 
<laughs> Maybe that was a softball after that answer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I, yeah. Yeah. Like soft, it's a softly political, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's people who tell like, uh, some graphic stories who I think are very political. Susie Cagle comes to mind and Dan Archer are two great graphic journalists whose works very, um, very political and um, they're telling stories in a very political way. I feel like I'm coming around from the side a little bit more. Um, It's like using, using uh, celebration perhaps and using like more of a, um, a positive, a positive light on the things that I think are worth supporting um, as opposed to a more um, critical examination of the things that should disappear. That's just other people are so good at that. I'm not. Um, my way of coming at things is, is through uh, celebrating things. Wendy, thank you so much. This has been such a treat. <laughs> Oh my god, Ann Friedman, totally honor is all mine. Say hi to Amina. Also, we have to collaborate someday. Yes, please. I've been waiting for you to say that. Okay, great. Anytime. Okay. You can find us many places on the internet, on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. Download our show on the Acast app or on iTunes, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at callyrgf or email us callyrgf at gmail.com. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.